I'm not preaching in James. Some say, whoa, that's good. I, um, I really desire that we know God better as a, as a group of people. Do we know God? We know of Him, we, we read about Him, but do we know Him? And my desire this morning is to talk about one of our Lord's, of God's attributes, and that is God's sovereignty. I'm not going to answer all the questions that you might have. I can maybe do that after. But the reason I'm touching on God's sovereignty is because it's a truth that touches every part of our life as Christians and as non-Christians as well. And therefore it's a truth that we should know very well and understand and accept and believe by faith. It's also a truth that can be very much misunderstood God's sovereignty and there's a lot of discussion that goes on a lot of the time in different places Bible colleges and amongst theologians about God's sovereignty as I said I'm not going to answer all those but what I want to do is look at God's word and to bring out God's sovereignty and one of the reasons it's misunderstood for instance is that man's doing or God's doing that we're moving into a new church next week. Is it man's or is it God's doing? You might be going through very difficult times at the moment, whatever that may be in your life. Does God know about it? Does he care? Is God still in control even though you're going through some hard times? And the way I'm going to answer those questions is to simply show you the scriptures. We're going to do a, like, a, like a Bible drill. Remember the old Bible drills when you used to see who could get to the Scripture passage the fastest? It's a good way to, to learn where all the Bible books uh, are located in your Bible. Now, if you can't get there in time, I can't wait for everyone to get there. But if you can't get there in time, just listen. Make a note of them and go back to them later on. But that's what I want to do. I want to look at God's sovereignty through the Bible. But to begin with, I want to start with the word itself, the word sovereign itself. We, in 21st century Australia, don't have a lot of need for the word sovereign. If you were back in the 17th, 18th century and you lived in England, or any country that had a king or a sovereign, you would know what that meant. You would know that they were in control of their land. They were sovereign of that land. If they said, jump, you jumped. If they wanted your head, they took your head. They were the rule of the land and no one, no one was above them. And so the word itself is both a noun and a verb. As a verb, it means to rule. As a, it means, as a a verb, it means to, to be a king or a master or an absolute ruler. And so when I say God is sovereign, what I mean and saying to you is that God is in charge of the entire universe. He's in charge of the entire universe all the time. And I want to bring in here the Westminster Confession of Faith. They wrote this many, many years ago and they wrote, He, that is God, ordains whatsoever comes to pass. That's in the Westminster Confession. He ordains whatsoever. Whatsoever comes to pass. 
And we struggle with this as humans. We really do. We struggle with the idea of God's sovereignty. We want to be in charge of our own life. We think we are. We, we think that we can do whatever we like. And we can shake our fist at God and say, no, that's, that's not right. He ordains whatsoever comes to pass. God's sovereignty also, as I studied this, made me acknowledge a few things. And the first thing God's sovereignty does for me is it it humbles me. Why am I humbled by God's sovereignty? Because the idea of God's sovereignty reminds me that God is God and I'm not. He ordains whatever comes to pass, not me. You see, when I think I'm ready to advise God on how to run the universe, and I'm wondering if we think that sometimes, that we can advise God on how to run the universe, when I think I know better than God knows, whatever's happening in my life, I think he just looks at me and says as he did to Job. This is what he said to Job in chapter 38, verse 2. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man and I will ask you and you instruct me. This is God talking to Job. And then God asked Job a question. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have any understanding of that. I liken it to a person who visits my home and starts to criticise things within my home. You know, that person doesn't like the colour of the wall and they let me know doesn't like the way I've set up the lounge room with the TV or doesn't like the way that our, our kitchen is predominantly red. What do you say to a person who walks into your home and starts criticising you about how you run that home? Or something like, well, when you start paying the bills, you can have a, a say in it. And you say, until then, feel free to say nothing. And in a small way, to me, that's what God's sovereignty does. It should put us in a place where we should say, and God tells us, feel free to say nothing about how I run the universe. God is God and we're not. Going back to Job chapter, uh, the Job chapter that I read from, Job chapter 38, he asked those questions and Job, as God asked questions now for four chapters or three chapters of Job. He asked things like, uh, who set its measurements since you know? I love God's uh, uh, way that he asks these questions and brings out the sarcasm. You didn't know God was sarcastic, did you? I, I believe that he's bringing this out. You know, don't you? Who set the heavens? Who set where the boundaries of the, the earth, the, uh, the seas go? He says something, have you, have, you ever, have you ever in your life commanded the morning? and cause the dawn to know its place? He asked lots of questions for chapter after chapter. Chapter 40, verse 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Job, Who will the fault finder, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. And God kept asking these questions of Job right up to chapter 42. And all the way, Job didn't have an answer. It was like God was saying, feel free to say nothing. You weren't there. You didn't create. 
And so God's sovereignty should be a humbling doctrine to us. God is God and we're not. It's also a mysterious doctrine because it brings us face to face with the problem of evil and, and man's free will. If God is sovereign, why is there evil in the universe? If, God is, if man has free will, how can God be sovereign? Christians have debated those questions for centuries. And all I'm going to say right now is that God is sovereign and we're going to have a look at that through the scriptures and I'm going to tell you that you are truly responsible for your choices as well. I haven't got time to get into that side of it, maybe another time. Often we don't understand how that works together, but they do. And the, and the chapter I, I turn to or the book that I turn to is the book of Acts. You might like to turn there with me to see God's sovereignty and man's free will working together in unity. Acts chapter 2. See, I would have failed in the, uh, getting the verse quickly. It's all these small pages. You can't turn one page and turn 20. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Peter's sermon. So when I go to, whenever I question God's sovereignty and man's decisions that he makes. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as, you so, as yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. The predetermined plan of God was that Jesus Christ die on the cross but if you read the, the Gospels, it looks like it's man's plan. And there we have God's sovereignty and man working together, uh, not really ever meeting, but God's foreknowledge and predetermined plan was that Christ died and he used man to do that. And he used it of their own free volition. God's sovereignty is humbling, it's mysterious, but it's also illuminating. To me, God's sovereignty teaches me that there's no such thing as luck or fate or coincidence. You can have God, you can have fate, but you can't have both. There was a farmer who was applying for health insurance. One of the questions he was asked was, have you had any accidents in the previous year? The farmer replied, no, I, I don't think I did, but I was bitten by a snake and a horse kicked me in the ribs that laid me up for a while. The agent thought for a while and said, but weren't those accidents? No, the farmer replied, they did it on purpose. The farmer, in a, in a, in a, a funny way, realize that there's no, there's no such thing as accidents. Do you think that God catch, that you catch God by surprise in what happens? Do you think God has the word whoops in his vocabulary? Uh, I, I don't think so. You'll never hear God saying whoops. 
What do you think? Do you think that some things catch God by surprise? God's sovereignty is humbling, it's mysterious, it's illuminating, but it's also an empowering doctrine. If you believe God is sovereign and understand his sovereignty and truly believe it, no person can intimidate you. Nothing, no position, nothing that happens to you can intimidate you. What gave David the courage to go down into the Elah Valley and face the giant Goliath, do you think? This is what he said in Samuel. You come to me with a sword, a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. David, David's God was so big that Goliath was just a midget in his sight. He was empowered by God's control over all things. But don't take my word for it. Let's look at the word of God. This is where we're going to look mainly at Job and then into uh, where we read or where Jordan read for us. If you'd like to turn to the book of Job, I'll read a few things from there. Job chapter 23. This is what Job says about God. Just one verse here and then we'll move on to other verses. Job 23 verse 13 says about God, he says, but he is unique and who can make him change? And whatever his soul desires, that he does. In this verse, Job is just starting to begin to understand that he is not in a position to demand anything from the Lord. In and of himself, Job has no power to change the dreadful condition that he's in. He's found out now that he can't even demand a hearing to plead his case to the Lord. God does what, he's want, what he wants and Job is powerless to oppose him. And then as I read in chapter 38, God asks him all these questions. Where were you? Sit down, pull up a chair, tell me how the world was created. You might like to read from 38 through to 42 one time and just get a drift of what, how powerful and enormous God is and how small we are. But then he gets to chapter 42 and Job finally comes to, the, to, the answer, to his answer. He says, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. In fact, this verse introduces the final chapter of Job's saga. It comes after God has given him a theology lesson. It's giving, he's given him a, a creation exam and Job has flunked it miserably. In fact, Job couldn't answer one question in four chapters. And now he's thoroughly humbled. Job confesses that God is all-powerful. He does what he wants and no one stands against him. And that confession of Job's led him to a deep repentance for his foolish questioning of God's plan. Look at chapter 42 in Job verse 6. He says, Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. He finally reached that point 
where he was able to understand that God is all-powerful. And that's where everything changed for Job. After his confession that God is all-powerful, after the knowledge that he retracts everything he said, and after he repented in dust and ashes, everything was given back to him. Sevenfold. As we move on to Psalms, Psalm 115 verse 3 simply says, But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. To me that's pretty clear. You can't get any more clear than that. The Lord of the universe does whatever he pleases. He is the potter, we are the clay. And whenever I read this verse, I want to stop and say, Okay, any questions? And if there's any questions, then he'll sit you down for four chapters and start telling you what Job, what he told Job. Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deep places. There's a conclusion to that Psalm 135. It's called the fivefold call. to to praise God it says bless the Lord from verse 19 of Psalm 135 bless the Lord O house of Israel bless the Lord O house of Aaron bless the Lord O house of Levi you who fear the Lord bless the Lord blessed be the Lord out of Zion who dwells in Jerusalem praise the Lord and that all comes from whatever the Lord pleases he does Ephesians 1.11, going into the New Testament. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. There are many, many verses, all stressing God's complete sovereignty over all the affairs of the universe. Nothing happens outside of his control. Ephesians 1.11, all things happen in accordance with the counsel of his will. All things, not some things. He rules over all things. Now, so far I've given you a broad, vast, breathtaking statements and there's been no exceptions in there. It's not that God rules over everything except your boss. It's not that God rules over everything except your husband or your wife or your children. It's not that God rules over everything except uh, uh, your sickness or your problems or your failures. The sovereign rule rules over all things, every detail of your life. Listen as I read Isaiah chapter 40, starting at verse 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in? He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. You know, just a month ago we saw another Prime Minister come into being. Isaiah 40 is always a great reminder to me of how God reduces the rulers to nothing. 
It's another example of how we vote, but God puts them there. Scarcely they've been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely have they taken root, but he merely blows on them and they're gone. The nations are like grasshoppers, that Isaiah says. The rulers of the world, including ours, are like dust in the wind. He blows on them, they disappear, they're here today, gone tomorrow. Even the mightiest ruler lasts only as God has, has, uh, says they can. And so they prance on stage, they do their thing and then they disappear. And there's no better story to illustrate this than the narrative of a pagan king. A king who learned the truth about God's sovereignty the hard way. And that's where we come to Daniel chapter 4. What was read for us is the fact that we need to go back 25 centuries to the ancient city of Babylon. As Jordan read for us, we met a most, the most powerful man in the world, Nebuchadnezzar. And he had a strange dream. He dreamt that uh, there was a vast tree, it stretched to the sky, its branches were large, its branches were strong, all kinds of birds nested in the tree, all manner of animals found shade underneath the tree. Suddenly in his dream, everything was cut down, its branches were stripped, the fruit was scattered, nothing was left but a stump with an iron or uh, bronze uh, strap around it. Nebuchadnezzar also dreamed of a man who lost his mind and began to live amongst animals. That was the setting of the dream. As you go on in that chapter, you will see that the king's advisors couldn't interpret the dream. So the king asked Daniel to interpret it. Daniel knew straight away through his God what it meant. And Daniel chapter 4 verse 22 says, You, O king, are the tree. Nebuchadnezzar had become so great in his kingdom that people from all over the earth were flocking to, to Babylon. This marvellous kingdom. And that was the good news of the tree. The bad news was that the king would lose his mind and would eat gra- grass like a cattle for seven years. Look at verse 24 of Daniel 4. That Daniel gives him the interpretation. He says, This is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King that you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you. And then the scripture goes on to say that Nebuchadnezzar would be like that until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Daniel implored that the king repent, show kindness, but the king ignored Daniel's response and exactly one year later, the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace. Look what he said in verse 30. Is this not Babylon the Great? which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. I wonder if we've stood back after we've mowed the lawn and thought, what a great house I have. And so I've done it all. 
I have built this house for, for, for my residence. By the might of my power, for the glory of my majesty, I have this place. Even while the words were on Nebuchadnezzar's lips, the voice of God spoke, announcing his punishment. In that very moment, the words were still on his lips. The mightiest man on earth lost his mind, began to run through the streets of the city, shedding his clothes as he went, bellowing like a cow. He made his way outside, began to live with the cattle. His hair grew long. His nails were like the claws of birds. Seven years Nebuchadnezzar lived with the beast in the field. Verse 34 tells what happened next. This is after seven years. I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason turned, returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised the, and honoured him who lives forever. Nebuchadnezzar looked up, he woke up, and he spoke up. And then the king gives us an application of his life story in verse 35. This is what he learnt. He said, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? That was Nebuchadnezzar's, what he learnt. And you can search through all 66 books of the Bible and you won't find a better statement of what God's sovereignty really means. No one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? In wrapping up the story on Nebuchadnezzar, we have the final verse of Daniel 4. This is what the king has now to say about the God who humbled him. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt and honour the King of Heaven. For all his works are true and his ways just and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. I want you to understand and get that. All his works are true, all his ways are just. Everything God does is true and right. I wonder if you're able to say that about God right now and mean it, that everything that God does is true and is right. That's just one story of Nebuchadnezzar. And I want to finish off with, we've still got a fair way to go, so it's not like Paul and says, finally, brethren, and keep going. I'll say finally, brethren, and keep going for a little while. But what are the practical uses of God's sovereignty? It's one thing to read the book, one thing to understand what Nebuchadnezzar went through, but what is the practical uses of God's sovereignty in our lives as believers? Here in the 21st century, what, is, what good is it to us? And I've chosen just four, and there are probably many. But these are the four I chose. Firstly, God's sovereignty gives me confidence in God's ultimate victory and Satan's eventual defeat. That's the first thing that God's sovereignty does for me. Because God is sovereign, we know that according to the scripture, he will eventually win the battle over Satan. But because God lives outside of time, the victory is already won in eternity. I want you to understand that. 
that the victory is already won. But we live in time. We don't live in eternity yet. And the trouble is that from our perspective, it looks like and the battle is still raging all around us. And too often we see the bad guys are winning, the, the unrepentant are winning and, and, and rising up. Are you troubled with the thought of why do non-Christians seem to be so happy in spite of their sin? Why do non-Christians seem to prosper? Why doesn't God judge them? Sometimes it looks like people are getting away scot-free. Where is God's sovereignty in the world today? And my answer to myself, is, uh, and I'll read a psalm to you in a minute, my answer is it doesn't matter who's winning at half-time. The only thing that matters is who's winning, who's winning at the end of the game. That pastor follows the Chiefs and they won last night, but they were losing badly at half-time. And he could have walked out at half-time and said, well, that's, this, is, this is no good, the, the Chiefs are losing. But it doesn't matter who's winning at half-time. It's matter who's winning at full-time. And that's how it is with God. It doesn't matter who seems to be winning now. Who's going to win in the end? God's sovereignty tells me that he, will, he is one. He has already won. But Asaph had the same problem. You might like to turn to Psalm 73. There's nothing new under the sun. Maybe I'll go through Ecclesiastes through, through that um, one day. But Psalm 73, Asaph struggled with the same things we do. I'm just going to read from verse 12. Psalm 73. I'm reading from the New New Living Translation. It says, Look at these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. How many of us feel like that? (laughs) I get out of bed, I feel pain. Then he says, if I had really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your people. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper. But what a difficult task it is. Then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and finally I understood the destiny of the wicked. Now I don't know what the pastor was speaking on during that time when he walked into the sanctuary. I don't know who was who was speaking, but the preacher that day must have been speaking on the sovereignty of God because Asaph then understood God is in control. I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain, but after he went into the sanctuary of God, he finally understood the destiny of the wicked. God's sovereignty has shown us the destiny of the wicked in the book of Revelation. He came to understand God's sovereignty guarantees the ultimate victory of good over evil. It just turns out that God's timetable is different than yours and mine. So one practical use of God's sovereignty in the life of a believer is to have that confidence that God has ultimate victory and Satan is defeated. Secondly, the knowledge of God's sovereignty should bring comfort in the midst of trials and afflictions. This is the one that comforts me a lot because I have to admit and I submit to you that God uses hard times to teach us about his character and to grow ours. We can't get away from that. 
James chapter 1 verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And it's not just James. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1 6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, that is the inheritance, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. And then he tells us why. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God uses trials, tribulations to grow our character. And like Nebuchadnezzar, we need to come to that place where we can say through the things that we're going through, everything he does is right and all his ways are just. That's the bottom line. And this is where Romans 8.28 comes into its own. The pastor shared with this some months ago. And we know that God causes all things to work together for, God, for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I do not like people using that just by itself. Someone has just died and they say, all things work together for good. I'm going, you know, going through a bad situation. All things work together for good. The good that, that Paul is speaking of there is not the good that we think that everything's going to be rosy. It's good the fact that we're growing and becoming more Christ-like each and every day. All things work together for good. You might be going through something. It's not going to work together for good in the sense that you and I think, or that that word good. But it is going to work together for good for your strengthening, your growth, and becoming more Christ-like each and every day, which is what Paul is talking about. So all things don't work together for our good in the sense of our living on this earth, but they work together for our good for growing more Christ-like. And Job understood this. Listen to Job chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. This is right at the beginning. In fact, his wife said to him in verse 9, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. That's his, that's his wife's um, idea of a, a resolution to this. This is what Job said. He said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. This is the bottom line. We thank God for the roses, but do we thank him for the thorns? We thank God for all the blessings we get, and rightly so, but do we also thank him when we're going through those trials. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Do we thank him that he loves us enough to help us to grow and be strengthened in him? Everything is either caused by God or allowed by God. There is no third category in the scriptures that I can find. 
We may not be able to see it. We may not be able to feel it. I can't figure it out. But the fact still remains, by faith, God is all over every situation in life. The good, the awful, the happy, the sad, the positive, the negative. He's always there. He's always present. He's always working out his plan for you and I. Even in the moving of our church, God is in control and he has the plan. You know, God's sovereignty to me means nothing can happen to me, nothing can happen to you that does not first pass through God's loving and righteous hands. If nothing else, take that away. Nothing can happen to you that does not first pass through God's loving and righteous hands. He is always right, he is always just, he is always loving. And that should be indeed a great comfort to us. In fact, I find it easy to worship a God who can suddenly and without warning do things that made no sense to me. See, only an almighty God takes life and gives life. Only an almighty God rides on the storms. Only an almighty God sends prosperity and trouble. Only an almighty God answers my prayers and then leaves me speechless and confused, all without the need that he has to explain it to me. And in the end, the mystery of all ends up building my faith as I trust him by faith. I've often said, let's face it, why would we want to worship a God that I can fully understand? His ways are higher than our ways. His Romans 11.33, where Pastor finished last week, I can't go past that for this particular idea of fully understanding God. After all 11 chapters of God's riches to us, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of a God. And then he says, How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. His judgments are unsearchable and his ways... You know, sometimes we don't know why things happen to us. Sometimes God pulls back the curtain and we can say, oh, that's why that happens. Sometimes he doesn't. But in glory we'll know as he knows. And so as a Christian we should have great comfort in the midst of trials and afflictions because God is in control. He is sovereign and he's even gone to the 